Well, good morning. We might make a start. If you've got your Bibles there, turn to Exodus chapter 17. And while you're doing that, I'll give you a bit of a recap. We're going through the book of Exodus, and we've uh, had the Lord give the manna, and we learned from the manna that the manna has to be collected every day. There's only enough, and the manna evaporates when the sun comes up. So what we need to do is every day go out and get our manna. And the manna is a picture of the living word, the bread of life. And so how we get our manna is through the word of God, the written word. And we need to read each morning to get our daily provision of food that God has given us. And then last week we went to Horeb and Moses strikes the rock. So that's where we're going to pick it up today. We covered this last week and how it relates to the giving of the Holy Spirit. So we're not going to go through that again, but we're just going to make the connection between what comes next as well. So I'll just pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. Lord, there's some amazing lessons we're going to learn here, some really awesome applications. Help us to learn, to understand, and to apply, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's pick it up in verse 5. Exodus chapter 17, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So we've covered that previously. I just want to talk about the water from the rock, the Holy Spirit. We need to depend on the Holy Spirit in our lives, because what happens is we face this battle, which we're going to find out about now. It's Amalek. So verse 8 starts with, Now Amalek came. So they just received this water, and as Jesus said in the New Testament, it's a picture of living water, the Holy Spirit being given to us. So every time the Amalekites are mentioned in the Bible, they speak of the ongoing war that we wage with our flesh, or sinful nature, or old man, however you want to call it. Here it's as if God says, I know you feasted on the bread, you've got the manna, but right around the corner, war is going to break out. And if you try and defeat Amalek in your own strength, you'll be trounced. You'll be defeated. So he takes us to this place where we need him. And if we're wise, we'll ask him to give us his Holy Spirit, to fill us with his Holy Spirit. As the scriptures say, be filled with the Spirit. It's a picture of being dependent on the power of the Spirit in our lives. So. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So if we hunger, we'll be filled with the word, and if we thirst, we need more of the Holy Spirit. So, and Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So this is their first battle, according to the Scriptures. There was no record of the Jews ever fighting any battles in Egypt, so they had a pretty easy time there. But once they were delivered from bondage, 
they discovered they had enemies. Now, isn't that the way it is with the Christian walk? Before we become a Christian, life's hard because, you know, we're pretty miserable. But once we become a Christian, suddenly we find we've got one major enemy. It's the flesh, plus the world and the other things that we struggle with. So when we identify with Jesus, his enemies become our enemies, and we must fight the good fight of faith. We need the battles of life to balance the blessings of life. Otherwise, we'll become too confident and comfortable and stop trusting the Lord. Now, as we go, as you read through the Old Testament, the Israelites get really self-confident after winning some battles, and then they start trusting their own power and resources, and they end up being defeated again because they're not trusting in the Lord. So who is Amalek? Where does Amalek come from? Well, Amalek is a descendant of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. So Jacob was the spiritual guy. Esau was the carnal or fleshly guy, not interested in spiritual things, and he's the one who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. So Amalek is Esau's grandson. And he fathered a people, this nation called the Amalekites, and they're epitomized or characterized by carnality or worldliness. They're just really an evil people. They're brutal, they're intimidated by no one, and they seek to wipe out the children of Israel. So I'm just going to like you to keep your finger in Exodus, but turn also to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. And there's a bit of a commentary here from Moses on this situation that we're going to read about today. So I'm going to read this first to give you the context. That's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 and 18. It says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. This is the only nation that God gives them such a strong warning about, such a strong instruction. You go fast forward to King Saul. What was God's command to King Saul? Destroy the Amalekites completely. These guys are a picture of the flesh. So when the Israelites were set free from Egypt, head of the land of promise, Amalekites would ambush those in the back of the pack. So you've got all the, the whole nation, you know, up to three million people going through the wilderness, and you've always got the stragglers, you know, the people who are a bit slower, and they're sitting at the back. And that's the tactic of our flesh, our sinful nature, is to get us when we're weak. Okay, So any time we find ourselves weak, when we're not fully engaged in our Christian walk, then we're susceptible to being attacked by our flesh. Whenever we say, I've been on this journey a long time, I've gone to tons of Bible studies, I've been to countless prayer meetings, I've had my share of communion, uh, that's when the flesh rises up, when the flesh takes control, when Amalek launches an ambush. So we need to stay engaged. We can't say, I've read the Bible enough. No, we need to stay engaged. We need to be in a safe place which is engaged to be continuing to grow in our walk with the Lord. You're either going forwards or you're either going backwards. So Jesus said, 
We must watch and pray lest we enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready or willing, but the flesh is weak. So when do we experience attacks? In your life, when have you experienced most attacks, the hard times? Usually it's after a blessing. We go through something, oh, it's fantastic. And we forget to rely on the Lord and we take our focus off the Lord. Sometimes I think God uses these attacks, He uses these testings to keep us from trusting the gifts instead of the giver. It was after his victory over the four kings that Abraham was tempted to take the spoil, Genesis 14. And after the victory over Jericho, Joshua became overconfident and was defeated at Ai, Joshua 7. After Elijah defeated the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, he became discouraged and was tempted to quit, 1 Kings 18. And it was after the blessings at his baptism that our Lord was led into the wilderness to be tempted. So it's after the blessings we can face these serious trials. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, 1 Corinthians 10.12. So verse 9, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So here we're introduced to Joshua. Now I love Joshua. He's an awesome character in the Bible. He's a faithful young man and Later on we read, he spends all his time in the tabernacle in Moses 10, where Moses met with God. He didn't come out. Moses came out, but Joshua would stay there. He was just a really, really godly guy. He was a servant. So he was born in Egypt, and his original name was Hoshea, which means salvation. Later, Moses changed his name to Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. That's Numbers 13, verses 8 and 16, which is a Hebrew equivalent of Jesus. So Joshua grew up in Egypt, experienced all that slavery, but he showed an aptitude for leadership, so Moses put him in charge of the army. But as I said before, he became Moses' servant. Now, there's an important principle here. If you want to be great, first you need to be a servant. God's policy is that we first prove ourselves as faithful servants before we can be promoted to being leaders. And that's generally the way it works. David was a shepherd. He learned to serve faithfully in the fields and then he became the king. So remember that there's no evidence that Israel fought any battles. This is a new thing for them. Even coming out of Egypt, God said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today chapter 14, but now they're on their pilgrimage, their their pilgrim journey, they're going to face many battles, and they're going to have to learn to fight themselves, of course with God's help. And 1 John 5, 4 says, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. It's our faith. God is testing them. God is growing their faith. And he said previously that he didn't take them straight to the land of the Philistines in case they chickened out, basically. They'd be scared of war. And so God has to strengthen them. They're just babes. It's a brand new nation, and God is going to strengthen them. He's going to grow their faith. So verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. 
So, 1 Timothy 2.8 says, The lifting up of hands speaks of prayer, and lifting up holy hands. And it's the Jewish tradition to, when we pray, or when they pray, they lift up their hands. So Moses lifting up his hands while he was praying. And they still do that today if you see pictures of the Jews praying. So Moses is reaching out to the Lord on the mountain of intercession, so to speak. And there was a victory below in the valley of interaction. So, And it's the same for us. We have our mountain of intercession. We have our prayer life. And then if we're praying, we'll have victory in the valley of interaction in our daily grind. So we can understand how Joshua would grow and the army would grow faint and weary and tired fighting the battle. But why would Moses get weary holding up the rod of God? You know, he's just standing there holding this rod up. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 34 verse 7 that he didn't, even to the very day of his death at 120 years old, he didn't lose his natural strength. So it wasn't because he wasn't strong. The cause isn't physical. True intercession is a demanding activity. To focus your attention on God and pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, can weary you as much as strenuous work. So we're talking about prayer here, real intercessory prayer. Like Epaphras, we must always be laboring fervently in our prayers, Colossians 4.12, and not just casually mentioning our request to the Lord. Samuel L. Zwimmer, if that's how you say it, missionary to the Muslim world, used to call prayer the gymnasium of the soul. And John Bunyan wrote, In prayer it is better to have a heart without words than words without heart. To put your full heart into intercessory prayer will cost you, but it will also bless you. So praying is hard. It's going to cost you. It's going to wear you out. It's going to, it's going to be difficult. So don't expect it to be easy. So verse 12, But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Jesus said, Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Luke 18.1 And as long as Moses was doing just that, praying, symbolized by his hands in the air, there was victory. But once his hands got heavy, which happens to us, we lose strength in our spirit to pray. Victory was in jeopardy. And have you experienced that too? We know we should be praying. We start to pray. But then we quit. We kind of splutter. It's like an engine running out of fuel. What's the solution? Well, we need an Aaron and a Her. Every one of us needs one or two people in our lives we can count on to lift us up in prayer and to pray with. Because if we don't, we're going to be like Moses and we're going to splutter and fail. We're going to end up not praying as effectively as we could. So everybody needs someone that they can count on, that when your soul sags, when you know Amalek is on the attack, when you feel your flesh rising up within you, you can say, pray for me. And I believe we need each other more than we realize. We need each other to pray for each other, not just for each other, but with each other. Prayer, getting together and praying with each other is really, really important. 
So verse 13. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. That's Yahweh Nissi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And this is one of the main verses where we get this picture or type where Amalek is a picture of the flesh. It's from generation to generation. It's an ongoing battle. But the promise is, I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. The future of Amalek is sure. It's going to be wiped out. Okay, There's no doubt about it. But it's going to be a long, long battle. It's from generation to generation. Jesus defeated the flesh, the old man on the cross, but there's still like mop-up battles to go on. So when the battle was finally won, God instructed Moses to record what had happened in a book. Why? So that future generations would know that the battle was not won with the sword in the Valley of Interaction, but through prayer on the Mount of Intercession. So this is one of the few times when God actually says, write this down and remember it. Because here's Joshua fighting his way down in the valley. He's thinking, oh, wow, our men fought really well. You know, put their hands around each other's shoulders. Oh, congratulations, we beat the Amalekites. God says, write it down in a book that you didn't beat them by the power of the sword. You beat them by the power of prayer. Sometimes we think that we just need more skill with the word. We need to know more of the word. We need to learn more. Well, we do. But it's not the only thing we need. If we could love more, we'd see the salvation of our parents and grandchildren or our neighbours or friends. But this story tells us it's not where the battle is won. It's won through prayer. We need to be praying for our families. We need to be praying for our lives, that we can be dependent on God and his power will flow through us. So prayer, again, is symbolic of our dependence on God. Now, who's heard of the phrase... Prayer changes things. Who thinks it's quite true? Well, I'm just going to throw a cat amongst the pigeons here. Could we say faith changes things and prayer changes me? Just to throw something out there. Because prayer doesn't change just things, prayer also changes us. As we depend on the Lord, we change. There's a quote from John Corson. Yes, God wanted the children of Israel to win the battle, but he also wanted to win the heart of Moses in a deeper way, and he wants to do the same with us. We may think that our situation needs to change. God, however, knows that even if it did, we'd still be unhappy, sleepwalking through life unless our hearts were changed. Therefore, he says, because I want to fill your heart, inflame your soul, satisfy the ache within you which can be satisfied only by me, you're going to have to come to me time after time because when you do, you get to know me in the process. And when you get to know me, that is when and only when you'll be content and fulfilled, blessed and happy. That's what prayer is all about. It's not only about seeing things change, but also about seeing ourselves change. Not necessarily about a change of circumstance, 
but about engagement of spirit and expansion of heart. Often God won't change the difficult circumstance until he has changed us, until the hard times have fulfilled their purpose. So, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Now, this wasn't addressed to non-Christians. This was addressed to the church, to Christians. So it's an invitation. How do we open the door? Well, we pray. We communicate. He wants to have fellowship with us, so he wants us to talk to him. That includes listening as we read the Bible. So that painting, you might have seen it, where there's only one door handle. You know, It's up to us to initiate that fellowship. He's always willing. He's always going to come. He doesn't bust his way in. He doesn't force his presence. But he's knocking as his Holy Spirit. He's desiring intimacy with us. He desires a relationship with us. So if we're wise, we'll hear the knocking and open the door in prayer and enjoy his presence and company. So when we pray, just quickly on prayer, sometimes God... Well, there's three answers. You, you might know this already. There's yes, and there's no, and there's wait. And if God says no, then it means he's got something better for us. Because sometimes we don't know what we're asking for, and we don't realize that if God gave us what we asked for, it would actually be bad for us. So we have to accept God's no sometimes. But on the other hand, James tells us, you have not because you ask not. So we need to be asking at the same time. So if we leave God out of our lives, our marriage, our ministry, our raising kids, whatever it might be, our flesh will rise up, we'll be dominated by a sinful nature, and that's not a good place to be. Okay, We'll be in a hard place. So just going on a different tangent here, Joshua was down there in the battle, fighting this battle, and what would he see as he looks back on top of the hill? So he pictured Joshua fighting the Amalekites, and here's Moses behind him on the hill with Aaron and her. What would he see? Yep, hands raised up. Three men, the middle one with his hands raised up, praying. It's kind of like a picture of the cross. Jesus, the intercessor, praying with two on either side. And Jesus lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7.25. Aaron might get busy sometimes, her might not always be available, but Jesus is always around to make intercession for me. He loves to pray for me. And you probably already know that, but I just wanted to remind you about that, that he's praying for you all the time. Some people say that why should we pray at all? Why do we need to pray? Well, God wants to involve us. He wants to change us. Okay? The victory is won, but the battles are still ongoing. There's still, in a sense, like mop-up operations going on. The battle against the flesh isn't over until the day we die and go to be with the Lord. So do you want to be fruitful, successful, blessed in the daily skirmishes of life? Do you want to see your kids do well, the church blessed, the country changed? Well, Jesus won the victory completely at Calvary. We just need to claim that victory. We need to walk in that victory. Now, I just want to go back to that verse in Deuteronomy 
do not forget. Okay? The Lord has given you rest when other things are going good. Do not forget what the Amalekites did. We need to not forget the power of our flesh. Now, what does it mean? Here's another type for you. But I'm using this as an analogy to help us to understand what was going on with the Israelites when God was strengthening them, strengthening their faith as they came from Egypt, going through the seven stops we've been through already, stopping at Sinai, but then they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. So there was something happening. There was a preparation period before they were to step out in faith and cross the Jordan. He was preparing them. I believe that Crossing the Jordan was a picture of us when we come to that place in a Christian life where we're mature enough to die to self or put the old man to death. When we consider or understand that the old man, his power is broken, it's rendered inoperative, it's paralyzed. And we start to live by faith and not by sight. Because in the wilderness, they were living by sight. They had the manna, they had the water from the rock, they had the fire, they had the cloud. They had the constant reminders from God. He was kind of like holding their hand like a little kid. They needed all that assurance. But there comes a time when we can grow up, when we don't need all that assurance, when we understand that God loves us, no matter what our situation might be. And so God wants us to not forget He wants us to walk in victory over the flesh, a victory over the old man, over our sinful nature. We are not to accept it, accommodate it, or appease it. No, we are to obliterate it because we need to remember that our flesh only wants to destroy us. Again, you shall not forget. There's so many Christians who are walking around in bondage to the flesh, in bondage to their fleshly desires, their fleshly appetites. And it's just a really sad place for a Christian to be. There's only two options. We give in or submit to the flesh, the old nature, the sinful nature, and let it destroy our lives, our families. Let it cause us to live in unbelief, to make our walk with the Lord superficial, quench the spirit in our lives, destroy our families and marriages, weaken the church, lose our eternal reward, and most sadly bring dishonor to our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Or... We can submit to the Holy Spirit. We are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And when this is real in our lives, when we have considered that the old man is dead, when we stop listening to its persuasive and compelling lies, we destroy the works of the flesh. We put off the old man and put on the new. We believe and live by the promises of God. And we live lives that are eternally fulfilling. And we bring glory and honor to God. Our families and those around us are blessed. And we are living by faith, and our lives are fruitful. So, crossing the Red Sea, Moses put his rod over the sea, and it parted, and it was already open, and then God said, walk, and they went through. Crossing the Jordan, God says, start to walk, and then the waters will part. Okay, So it's a picture of living by faith. It's a picture of dying to self, of putting to death the old nature, and walking in victory. And it's a difficult process, okay, the first time you do this as a new Christian. Only two people out of the entire congregation of Israel were willing to do this. Only two people, Joshua and Caleb. I know I'm racing ahead to 
the next part of the story, but this is on the east side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, they had their food provided for them, they had their pillar of cloud, their fire, and all that kind of thing. They had constant evidence of God's love and provision for them. They hadn't grown in their faith. They hadn't applied the lessons they'd learned in the wilderness. We all start this way as a baby in faith, needing God to hold our hand, so to speak. But God wants us to grow up. He wants us to leave the nest. There's so much more he wants to show us. He takes us through hard times so he can demonstrate his faithfulness and his power to us. But the majority of the population refuse to believe. They refuse to trust. They refuse to go into the promised land. Remember that in Kadesh Barnea? They refuse to go across. They refuse to believe that God could deliver them from these massive enemies in that land, those big people, those big giants. And instead, they wandered in the wilderness for another 38 years until every person over the age of 20 had died. It's been called the longest funeral procession in history. Imagine that. Two million people dying within 38 years. So they still had God's provision. They still had God's presence. He never stopped loving them. And the same is true for us if we're walking in the flesh. He doesn't stop loving us. But they refuse to grow up. They refuse to trust God. And because of that, they never fully experienced the life, the full life that God had planned for them. They just kept going round and round in circles, not achieving anything and not growing, dissatisfied, unfulfilled, and always unhappy, always grumbling and always complaining. That's the children of Israel in the wilderness. Okay? They stayed as babies, babes in Christ, for 40 years. It's really, really sad. And it's tragic to see a 40-year-old sucking their thumb and crying at mama and dada whenever they want something. You know? It's really sad. So we don't want to have that with us. You know, we want to grow up. So let's look at some verses to help us understand the concept of dying to self. Matthew sixteen twenty four to 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So, just focus on the take up your cross part. There's three verses I'm going to read. Acts 14.22 Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So this is taking up your cross. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 That no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We take up that cross, we take up that suffering. But before we can take up the cross, we must first deny ourselves. And as I was thinking about this, this verse came to mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it's an interesting verse. It says, it's always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Now, how can this be? How can they be so strong? Well, 
Verse 10 gives us the answer. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested or demonstrated in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested or displayed in our mortal flesh. So we're always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. What does that mean? Well, Romans 6 tells us that this refers to the death to self, the denying of our old selves, the death to the old man. We should no longer be slaves to sin, but walk in the newness of life. So to wrap this bit up, I believe the tragedy is that the majority of the church today is like the children of Israel wandering in the desert, always wanting to go back to the world, to Egypt, never really wanting to leave the world behind, and therefore never really being different from the world. So it's a big reason why the church overall is in such a bad way, being full of sin and compromise, all because it's full of spiritual infants, still selfish and demanding what they want, And when they want it, just like a baby. I'm not saying the whole church is like that, but from looking around, there's a lot of babes who haven't grown up in the church today. And they need to come to that place, like every believer has to, when they grow up from being an infant to being a young man. We need to grow up to mature. But to do that we need to learn to live by the power of the spirit and that's what this is all about and every day we need to put to death or put off our sinful nature to stop living for ourselves and start living for god remember what paul said always carrying about in the body the dying of our lord jesus so how do we grow well like newborn babies you must crave pure spiritual milk that you will grow into a full experience of salvation so if we don't feed on the word we cannot grow We need the word of God like a baby needs milk. But once we grow up a little, we can start taking on solid food. We need the meat of the word. We can go deeper. And I've got two priorities for you. Firstly, prayerfully read the word and then prayerfully apply it. Very simple. Only then will you grow and change, growing in both the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that was the Amalekites. We went through We explained it and we talked about that cross in the Jordan being like dying to self. Often in the scriptures, especially in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus, it talks about the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath is a feast. That's a weekly feast. It's a weekly celebration or ordinance that the children of Israel have. So what is the fulfillment of the Sabbath? Have you thought about that before? We know the fulfillment of Passover is a cross. Jesus dying on the cross. Take away the sins of the world. He is a lamb. Take away the sins of the world. What is the fulfillment of the Sabbath? So we're going to read about the Sabbath a lot. But I'm going to take this time to actually talk about what the Sabbath is and also, more importantly, what the fulfillment of the Sabbath means for us. So... Firstly, we'll just explain a bit about the Sabbath. If you read Exodus chapter 31, if you want to turn there, Exodus chapter 31, we'll get some basics about the Sabbath down, and then we'll go into the fulfillment of the Sabbath. What is the fulfillment of the Sabbath? The real meaning behind it for us today. So Exodus 31 verses 12 to 17. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel. So who's he speaking to? Israel. He's speaking to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Okay, go down to verse 16. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Verse 17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and refreshed. So three times the Lord says, it's a sign between me and you. It's the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. Okay. Then Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 12 and 20. Moreover, I have also given them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And verse 20, Hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you, Israelites, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So I read those just to show that the Sabbath is for Israel to keep, not for the church, because some people still think that the Sabbath is for the church to keep. So I let the scriptures speak for themselves there. The principle of the Sabbath is important. We need to rest our bodies for one day in seven. Otherwise, we'll be unhealthy. But the day that we rest, it doesn't really matter. Romans 14 and a couple of verses we'll read in a minute talk about that the day doesn't matter. If we had church on a Wednesday, it wouldn't really matter. So the model in the book of Acts is that the first day of the week was set aside for meeting together. Now, Romans 14, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'll just summarize it quickly. It talks about those who eat only vegetables and choose to worship on a particular day of the week as being weak in their faith. And then it goes on to explain to us that we should not cause these people who are weak in their faith to stumble. The main point is that they don't understand the freedom they have in Christ. But as they mature and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, they should understand these things. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? He's talking about the law. You observe days and months and seasons and years. And then he goes in chapter 5, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Paul also says in Colossians chapter 2, Verse 16, So let no one judge you in food or drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. Remember, everything's got a fulfillment. All those feasts had a fulfillment. But the substance is of Christ. Verse 23, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So. The feasts all have prophetic meaning. They are a shadow. They point to something else. Okay, So so does the Sabbath. So, for example, the Passover is a picture of Jesus dying on the cross to redeem us and forgive us from all our sins. We no longer have to keep the Passover. We have the reality, the cross, which we celebrate with communion. It's interesting to learn about the Passover. It gives us more depth and understanding about the cross and, and why Jesus had to die. Absolutely, but we don't keep the Passover. 
uh, the church doesn't need to get the Passover. So what was the Sabbath a shadow of or a type of? So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. And this ties in perfectly with what we've been doing in Exodus chapter 17 about depending on God for strength and depending on the Spirit. And the key word in this passage, explaining the fulfillment of the Sabbath, and it's rest. And the key phrase says, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So that's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. So I've given you the secret straight up, but we'll read it together. So starting in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And then down to 16. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? And then it talks about the funeral procession. And verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So here, disobedience is linked to unbelief. Chapter 4. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. When we're talking about the immature people and the mature people, overcoming the sinful appetites of the flesh. Verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day, that is, Sabbath day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and to those whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. So it's for us today. The Sabbath rest is fulfilled today in verse 10. For he who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Okay, so the fulfillment of the Sabbath is us ceasing from striving and working by our own strength and learning to trust, rely in, and surrender to Jesus, allowing the Holy Spirit to control us and empower us. So if there's anything I'd like you to remember from today, is this 
verse here. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. It's for us today. For he who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Remember God said on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And it continues on, verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it goes on. So, how do we enter the rest? How do we cease from our works, our striving, our working in our own strength? Well, the Word of God shows us where we need to change. It shows us the thoughts and intents of our hearts. But it needs to be mixed with faith. Faith is a magic ingredient here. We need to apply faith. Joshua and Caleb saw exactly the same things as the rest of the congregation of Israel, but they had faith and the others didn't. In that type or picture, they're all saved. They're all under God's protection. They're all his kids. But only two of them were willing to cross the Jordan. Only two of them actually crossed the Jordan. So there's two pictures here. The children of Israel not going across. When the children of Israel didn't believe God and refused to enter the land, which is a picture or type of entering into God's promised rest, God said, fine, have it your way. I will not provide a way for you to enter, but I will for your children later on. Now what happened? The people tried on their own strength to defeat the enemies on the other side of the Jordan. What happened? They were soundly defeated. So they refused to believe in God's promises God's provision, God's power. They realized that I'm not going to cross. God said no. And then they tried it on their own strength. So I think that's what happens with a lot of Christians today. They don't believe in God. They don't put their faith in God. They don't trust his provision, his power. They try to do it on their own strength. They try to live the Christian walk on their own way, their own strength. They get defeated. And then... They live in that defeat, like the children of Israel did, going around the wilderness, around and around and around. And they remain babes in Christ because they never exercise their faith. And there's two reasons, I believe. Sometimes it's because they don't know the word, they haven't been taught the word. If you're not fed, you're not going to grow. Okay, Simple as that. If you don't take that manna and eat, you will not grow. If you don't drink the milk as a baby, you will not grow. But there's another reason. 2 Timothy 3.7 Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They never apply what they have learnt. So that's why application of what we know is so important. However, this also happens to mature believers. So if you've been walking with the Lord and you've learnt to overcome your flesh nature, or your sinful nature, great. But remember, that's why the scriptures say, do not forget. What happened after they crossed over? The new generation had crossed over the Jordan by faith, got their feet wet, then the water stopped. Well, by faith, they defeated Jericho. What happened then? Sin. Sin crept into the camp. Then, when there was this tiny little town called Ai, 
this tiny little town. Oh, he won't need more than 3,000 men for that. Anyway, they went up there and they got their bottoms kicked. They got humiliated and they go, well, what's going on? Well, as a Christian, as a mature Christian, not a babe in Christ, as a mature Christian, we can allow sin to enter our lives. And that can destroy us. In this case, it was Achan's sin of covetousness for wealth, which prevented the whole congregation from living a life of victory, from overcoming their enemies. So whatever appetite of the flesh we give into, it doesn't matter. It could be wealth, your desire for wealth, or fame, or alcohol, drugs, gossip, unforgiveness, or lust. Whatever it is, it must go. We must be pure and holy before God before we will experience victory. Compromise in one part of our lives will result in defeat in all parts of our lives. And I've added the word eventually, because it doesn't happen straight away. We compromise in one part of our lives, and the fruit of that, as it spreads throughout our lives, is eventual defeat in all parts of our lives. We'll eventually be disqualified. Numbers 32.23 But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. So, the key verse, as I said for today, as far as application goes, is Hebrews 4 verse 10. For he who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. And I just want to explain what his works are. Ceased from his works, that's our works. What are our works? What is that talking about? Well, Romans chapter 7 verse 21. It explains what our works are. Our works are our own self-effort. The things we do on our own strength. So that's our work. So we need to cease from our self-effort, the things we do on our own strength. So Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 21, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me, the sinful nature. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? So, here is the Christian dominated by sin and death. Okay, That's the struggle that we need to cease from. We need to cease from trying, cease from struggling to defeat our sinful nature on our own strength. Knowing the right thing to do, but never able to do it. Well, not often able to do it. Now, what does it mean to enter his rest? Well, if you just keep reading verse 25 in chapter Romans chapter 7, it says, Thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. So Jesus is the answer. What is the answer? Verse 2 of chapter 8. And because you belong to him, reading from the New Living, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And verse 13 in Romans chapter 8. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit... You put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. It's by the power of the Spirit. It's a power of the life-giving Spirit. It's by His power, His grace that I live. 
I can't conquer sin on my own. The enemy is too strong for me, and I need to come to understand this. So the wilderness experience we all go through is helping us to understand this. Galatians 2, 19, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. The law represents self-effort, self-sufficiency. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Living by the law means living by self-effort. When we are trying to be self-sufficient to do it alone, it means we are working. Okay, We're working. We need to live by faith, which is the opposite to unbelief. We need to trust in God and rely on God's grace, God's provision of power for us. That's resting. That's his rest. That's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And when we try and go it on our own, we are setting aside God's grace. So isn't it foolish to set aside God's grace and try and do it on ourselves when God's given us the provision that we need? I just want to finish with a couple of verses. First John chapter 2, verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And then verse 14. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Okay, there's that maturing, we're growing up into a young man because we learn to overcome the wicked one. So we need to be in the word, we need to be in prayer, but we need faith. And that faith is all about surrendering, faith that I can't do it on my own, but God can. And we cease from trying to do things in our own strength by the flesh of nature and simply trust in the finished work of the cross. We rest. So growing up and maturing means that we believe what the scriptures say in Romans 6 is true, that when Jesus died, the sinful nature, the old man, the flesh, was crucified with him, rendered inoperative, paralyzed, and that all we have to do is consider or reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's resting. Okay? Hebrews 4.10. So I'm just going to read... Romans 13, 11 to 14, just to finish, and then we'll pray. It's just an admonition that Paul gives us. I think it's a very appropriate way to finish today. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in reverie and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. I'm going to read the same verses from the New Living Translation. This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. 
So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armour of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the drunk darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarrelling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. So this morning, I didn't just go through the scriptures like I usually do. I've kind of given you a, a topical, added on to a bit of a exegetical message. But I've said the same thing like three times, if you notice that. Rely on the Holy Spirit. I've explained the Sabbath, that the resting in the Lord is the same thing as relying on the Lord. We're ceasing from our works. Moses holding his hands up was surrender. It's not trusting yourself. It's trusting God to do the work. Okay? So, very, very simple message this morning. What was the key verse that we talked about? Hebrews 4 verse 10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Father, I just pray that we can learn this that we could stop the struggle, Lord, that we could just stop being so independent and so self-sufficient and, Lord, so self-reliant and thinking that we can do things on our own. Lord, the Christian life is one of surrender. It's one of submission. It's one of dependence. It's one of giving up. It's one of letting go. And Lord, I just pray that we can just rest. We can just stop trying and trust in the finished work of the cross. That the body of death, this body of flesh is dead. It's being paralyzed, rendered inoperative. It's defeated. Help us to reckon it to be true. Help us to consider it to be true. And to live lives which honor you. And to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit overcoming the deeds of the flesh. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.